Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, it's Christmas week, everybody. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year coming up. The end of a good year. Um, or good good to be the end of the year. <laughs> can, can we say that 2020 was a good year? No, it's good to be the end of the year is what I was I trying know, to Peter, say. Maybe we shouldn't start over. Maybe we should keep yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's re- okay. <laughs> but anyway, happy holidays, everybody. And hi, Tyler, happy holiday to you. It's been a hell of a year. And uh, for our Christmas show, we got a pretty cool show about the oil and gas industry on the American shoreline with a couple of professional guys who know a hell of a lot about it. Uh, Bruce and Chris Wells from the uh, Oil and Gas Historical Society, Tyler. That's right. Uh, So, yes, happy holidays to everyone. And we thought it would be a fun time of year to look back on an important feature on the American shoreline, and that is the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Nothing says Christmas like coal. (laughs) And what got us off coal was oil and gas. Well, you know, it does coal does play a role in the Christmas story. You know, if you it were does. bad, you got coal. Yeah, that's a lump a, of that's coal. The, you got a lump of coal. So and I, uh, I always remember in uh, a Christmas story or a Christmas Carol, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, you for the fire, you needed coal to keep yourself warm. Yeah. So a lump of coal would not be so bad in in that kind of. Well, period we're of we're going to talk about that with these guys with Bruce and Chris because you know they start you know the oil industry it emerges out of the coal industry which was used to produce coal gas or for lamps and then and then the oil industry comes in after that so you know it's part of the story that's right let us that's light, our Christmas connection that's right let us light your kerosene lantern that's right and and keep you warm this holiday season with an interesting conversation with Bruce and Chris all about the history of oil and gas offshore on the American shoreline. Yeah. Uh, coming up, but first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Tyler, on Coastal News Today, one of the things we try to do is cover all of the economic sectors that operate along the American shoreline. 
And one of those tabs on the website, if you go to coastalnewstoday.com, is energy, because we try to keep track of this incredible industry and its impact and implications for the American shoreline. So we are, we are going to do a show today on energy, which I've been looking forward to for a long time, and we have some great guests to do that today. Yeah, you know, when you go on Coastal News Today and you click on the energy tab, you might see information related to the wind, uh, offshore wind yeah. uh, boom that's occurring and all of the uh, facilities and, and infrastructure that's going into a part of that. Uh, and you might read about the rig count, one of my favorite things on rig zone. Yeah. Uh, the rig count is up or down over 12 months. That's that's offshore oil rigs. And uh, it, it's just clear, Peter, that all around the American shoreline, uh, or at least in great a great number of parts, yeah. the uh, presence of offshore oil and gas and the jobs that that created, the, uh, the economic engine, the, the importance of this in communities on the people side and as, as energy infrastructure is absolutely incredible. Uh, and an important feature on the shoreline. So today we're going to look at the history of that. How did it come to be? We, we have special guests, and I want to welcome to the show uh, Bruce Wells, who is the founder and the executive director of the American Oil and Gas Historical Society in Washington, D.C., who uh, works on that organization with his brother, Chris Wells, who's a senior contributing editor of the society a documentary filmmaker as well, a couple of really interesting guys who who put together an amazing website. So as you're listening to this show, I would encourage everybody to uh, take a look at AOGHS. That's the American Oil and Gas Historical Society, AOGHS.org website. And uh, you'll get a feel for who we're talking to today. Well, Bruce and Chris, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Well, we are really glad to have you here as well. We're excited to learn about the history of offshore drilling. And I was shocked just how far back it goes. When I think of offshore drilling, I think of, you know, fairly modern examples of it. But uh, when I Googled up the history, I, w I was actually, you know, Peter, I was reading the Jacques Cousteau book. And was shocked, shocked, surprised to read that in the early days of Jacques Cousteau on the Calypso, a great deal of his time and energy was spent prospecting for oil. Uh, and I was, I was like, wow, this is really an explosion in the world of offshore drilling. So I became curious. How, what is the history of offshore oil and gas? Was there, were there examples of it before this period of time? Uh, and so I ended up on the American Oil and Gas Historical Society website and, great site. and reached a great site with a great rundown on the history of oil and gas and uh, got in touch with Bruce and Chris. And here we are now. So I think when you do a history show, there's really only one place to begin, and that's at the very beginning. Bruce, would you take us through uh, the earliest examples of offshore drilling and kind of the state of the industry at that time? Sure. Well, it's important to realize that the early industry, which began in 1859 when they started to search specifically for oil in Pennsylvania, actually uh, took place along a, a creek called Oil Creek because of natural seeps. And so 
uh, th that exploratory well found oil, which made headlines. And so uh, there was a rush of new exploration companies because a, a Yale scientist had figured out that uh, petroleum oil could make kerosene and make it uh, less expensively than what had previously been made from coal. That's why they called it coal oil. And so this was a, uh, there was great demand for kerosene for lamps because lamps uh, were, were so important. And so the exploration for oil moved from uh, the Pennsylvania Creek uh, th through West Virginia and Ohio. And it was basically just finding uh, uh, oil producing geology without knowing what petroleum geology was at the time. And so the, uh, the, as the search for oil progressed and they found producing fields without really understanding it, they, they soon discovered, and this was in Ohio in, in 1891, uh, that they, they basically realized that the, the producing zone went beneath a lake, Grand Lake St. Mary's. And so they started uh, building platforms. And so technically, Ohio could claim to be the first offshore wells. Do you think that, Chris? Yeah, they, they, indeed, when they heard that, you know, uh, that Louisiana was claiming that, they, they popped right in. But uh, there is some fine print, as always, behind uh, overwater discoveries. This uh, Grand Lake St. Mary's was, in fact, a man-made uh, lake. Huh. It took years of, of uh, construction. You know, before before the railroads assumed their uh, ascension to power, then canals were it and water uh, waterborne transportation for industry. And that's why this lake was was uh, built, basically to dam up something and help build the Miami and Erie Canal. But in doing so, uh, they just built piers, essentially chasing oil, as they ultimately would in California, chased it all the way to the lake shore and then out into the middle of the lake, building cribs and the kinds of construction you would see that they, as oil men are wont to do, uh, transform an existing technology, adapt it, innovate, and make uh, something more than a bridge crib as a site for oil drilling. So the technology evolved with uh, necessity to, to get that precious kerosene to keep the nighttime lit. You know, that, first of all, you got it. You, I really encourage listeners to go and check out the website because of the photographs. You can really get an idea of the construction and how this was being attempted. I mean, it's just an audacious attempt, in my opinion. But of course, they were doing a lot of things back then. You know, uh, you mentioned they were damn, you know, the, this is a man made lake created for. Uh, the purposes of creating a navigation canal. That's interesting. So we're modifying the uh, water and ground, the, the planet, in like pretty significant ways even then. Uh, but what's the America's energy uh, portfolio kind of broadly at this period of time? Like I'm thinking of the 1800s. I'm thinking of railroads, telegrams. Um, I think of factories and I think of steamships. Um is you know it's pre Edison. What what is what are we using energy for broadly? Other you know I know we're we've got locomotives, but what's our energy? What's the global energy demand even look like during this period of time? Just out of curiosity, regardless of whether it's coal or oil or, or whatever. Well, it was really coal, right, Chris? I mean, the uh, coal was uh, 
particularly in England and f for steam powered ships and things like that, it was the number one uh, resource being searched for worldwide. And when uh, early military powers were building uh, their great fleets, they would uh, base their strategies on coaling stations, how far their ships could go before they had to refill with tons and tons of coal. And so demand for coal was incredible. And that's where this, this revolution that came about when they discovered that you could refine kerosene as a fuel source for lamps. Because again, uh, that was getting away from uh, candles and whale coal, oil. Coal doesn't and, make a good lamp fuel, you know? <laughs> Well, and Chris has written about most people think uh, the oil industry saved the whales. They, they were already uh, being de in decline, but it was mainly camphene lamps, a very dangerous mixture that uh, kerosene replaced and, and did wonders for American productivity when, when uh, oil refined kerosene was made available to the public. And that built an entire infrastructure, and that's what got standard oil involved and everything else. So the initial uh, product, is it fair to say, of the development of, of uh, petroleum uh, products in the United States was for lighting? Is that fair to say? Or early on were petroleum products uh, being used in other ways? Well, they were used, uh, I mean, uh, if, you go, if you go back far enough, and one thing is to re uh, remember is, you know, by 1859, when... when uh, uh, Drake was funded with venture capital to go out and uh, do Drake, Drake's folly and try and pull petroleum out of the, the, the ground. That was regarded as, as uh, ludicrous. Um, but the, the change from, uh, from coal to coal oil, uh, meaning that they just would uh, compress and, and uh, rectify, for lack of a better word, into an aluminum, and that was it. There, were, there was illumination from brief examples of natural gas uh, as far back as a Lafayette when somebody would inadvertently knock a hole in the ground trying to find water and natural gas would come out it was used locally but in terms of what's the world state it was ab absolutely coal coal drove uh, 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 everything until gasoline uh, well until kerosene uh, came along um, but but each technology is replaced by uh, it's replaced, but its remnants are utilized. Remember, just a few years after, uh, what was it, 1861, I think, the first America exported its first oil. So in 59, they find it, and in, what, 61, Elizabeth Watts transports it at some great risk across the ocean to London. Wow. So the whole industry staggers along a little step forward and two steps back. Wow. So let's, let's talk more about the method of even attempting uh off doing oil i'm going to call it offshore Dr drilling drilling i want to know about like when did we drill the first well i mean in and you're talking about just anywhere yeah when did we start poking a hole in the ground and trying to instead of an oil <laughs> seep at the surface or something that was reasonably available without this when did we start drilling rigs and yeah <laughs> Well, that that, that's a good that's a good question. And, and in fact, historians are always hesitant to say what was the first uh, oil well, because 1859 in Pennsylvania, they were drilling specifically for oil. But there are actually examples in Kentucky of around 1815 that using a spring pole, a uh, very basic uh, drilling device. But these were um, 
And all those early wells were drilled seeking uh, brine. Salt was a definite pres preservative for early pioneers. And when they when they found uh, oil, they, they it ruined their 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 brine wells, and so they didn't like it. But there are exact examples in Kentucky that some people would bottle it up and sell it as a medicine. And so uh, earliest wells, though, were basically searching for salt. Uh, but but in eighteen in the eighteen fifties is when they started searching for oil to make kerosene. Well, and remember, we're uh, we are entirely focused uh, on on America's oil history. And like I said, everything's more complicated than it than it uh, looks. But certainly, the uh, in uh, Canada, the Canadian uh, oil industry industry predates ours in the Baku, uh, that that portion of the world over which. Uh, the Russians and everybody else fight about every 15 to 20 years. That also uh, was, you know, the the burning bush and the um, natural gas that was uh, seen in religious context there. You go back as far as China, they were harvesting natural gas centuries ago just to heat up pans to evaporate brine into salt. So the, when you say drill a well, Hmm. Just that we have an article on drilling technology and how that moved from spring pole, knock a hole in the sand to um, uh, cable tool drilling, uh, Drake's innovation along the way. You and I talk about drilling wells, but every inch of that well requires some some kind of invention. And uh, you'll, you'll see that in the many patent drawings that we uh, have on the site. I, I think now would be a good opportunity for me to introduce our audience to uh, uh, wildcatter Peter Ravella. Well, I don't know if you were a wildcatter. I, what do you call yourself when you're a rig man? I was a roughneck. A roughneck. Excuse me. A roughneck. Yeah, Peter Ravella. I was a. I was a. I was a old Derek Hand. I so was when a, you hear yeah. when you hear Chris talk about the history, do you recall being out there? And because when you were there, it was what the seventies. The seventies. Yeah. So was the technology yeah. by that point? pretty much at its terminus would you well, say I mean, has it you know i don't i'd have to ask these guys but i i will say it was impressive as hell i was working on a couple of gas wells in the permian basin at, after high school and uh on my way to college and uh spent a few summers as a roughneck but uh and we were we were drilling uh deep gas wells i think eighteen thousand feet was the target depth if i remember right um so it's a huge piece of machinery. If you can imagine drilling a hole that is miles deep and just the, the horsepower required to operate this thing was was amazing. And I'll have to say it was uh, it was really an, a great experience for me to, to I mean, first of all, help pay from going to school. So that was the number one objective. But, uh, you know, you learn a lot out there and it was really uh, something I look back on with a lot of fondness is the, the work I did in the oil field it was, it was uh, kind of uh, amazing and frightening and uh, learned a lot. Yeah. Well, if you're rough in, uh, out there, then you are in the same boots as, as folks in uh, 1859, you're just dealing with different technology, but you still don't smoke around an open hole. So there's lots of lessons. <laughs> That's right. Well, I was a damn good chain hand. I'll tell you that I got very, very good at that job. And, uh, and uh, I was a, a mud man for a while, and I was a derrick hand for a while. So you get to kind of do everything after a while. But uh, it's an amazing technology. And 
And I, being able to talk to you guys about the development of that technology is really right. Fabulous. Well, and I think that you know, since I'm the the layperson out of this group of uh, experts, let's just say, Peter, you're a good chain man, as you say. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say you're an expert. Uh, so my my question is, when we're talking about offshore drilling, um, is it largely the same process that you would undertake on land? But obviously, you've got to elevate your rig above the water and go down from, you know, obviously, you got to penetrate the water to the seabed and then drill from there. I mean, are is it procedurally, is it the same thing? I mean, in those early examples, the photographs on the website, it looks like an old, well, you know, well, an old picture of an oil well. It just happens to be out over the lake, you know? You know, well, the 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 danger of uh, drilling has been around for a long time, and that's uh, Peter. You working on a on a on a derrick? People have to understand that time is money, and those are operating twenty four hours a day. Yeah. And the technology of just replacing the drill bit with rotary drilling, uh, removing that ninety feet of pipe, and it's just it's an incredible process. It's constantly going on. Yep. But the uh, to, to transfer that technology to answer your question, I guess, uh, Tyler, it, it, the technology is pretty much the same, but uh, everything is complicated and made more difficult, particularly the farther and, and but you're dealing with uh, waves, you're dealing with supply lines, the, the entire infrastructure, how do you get the oil or natural gas out? So it just, it adds uh, many layers of complexity uh, and plus the technological factors that bring in blowout preventers and all the other technical advances over the years. I think a lot of people may not uh, realize, uh, you know, oddly enough, just uh, whether on land or on uh, uh, oversea, uh, over the ocean, as in uh, with the uh, uh, deep water drilling, uh, like the Exxon Valdez having set, you know, two world records for deepest depth uh, before the uh, before the disaster, the depths make it insanely complicated. And you can imagine in one of our articles here, a deep sea roughnecks, as the technology was evolving, there was at one point in time, the uh, you got to get the drill pipe into the borehole. And there we have uh, pictures of uh, underwater guys, you know, literally straddling the borehole trying to guide a uh, drill pipe that's descending from oh half a mile above or whatever to get into to the ground these these manual and highly dangerous uh and deep remember about 200 feet about all anybody's going to swim uh all of those as bruce was saying all of those complications render it extremely uh dangerous while the objective remains the same to to safely get um the oil out of the ground, get everybody home safe and don't screw up the environment while doing it. So, well, yeah. And you were, you were talking about the deep water horizon oil spill of 2010. Uh, Al was the tanker spill of uh, 1989. Right. Good clarification there, uh, Bruce. And uh, just, I, I, I want to just, so, I mean, this is already in my mind, I can envision just why this is so complicated. I mean, you are running a line, a, you know, mechanically connected spinning line from the top of the ocean, p potentially 
thousands of feet down and then from there you're going to drill i mean that's that's audacious that's that's audacious now but let's go back where it's a history show so we gotta we're kind of skipping around a little bit which is fine but i want to go back to the primitive stuff because i think i can understand it a little bit better i mean in that picture of of cato lake on the website which is in uh, louisiana and you mentioned uh, saint mary's lake saint mary's in ohio um in those examples, what I saw was like a wooden structure, wooden derricks, wooden like elevated boardwalk almost where you could run pipelines. How many men would it take, would be working on a project like this? And how would it be financed? And, and you know, were these were these major undertakings or were they kind of side projects, these early examples? Kermit, oh, Chris, Chris really can, can go into this. He's done so many research on the, the boom and bust cycles of the industry, whether onshore or off. But it, 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 it's there's an incredible – people get oil fever. <laughs> Once there's an oil discovery in any part of the country, hundreds of companies are quickly formed, uh, the, the, the uh, financing, and they, uh, the, the lease, lease prices go up. And so it, it attracts a lot of uh, experienced oil men, but it also attracts inexperienced companies that often uh, don't have the resources because the technology and the cost is so high. Well, that's particular in the case of, of uh, offshore, uh, uh, one of the things that our website does, most everybody knows somebody who has found a stock certificate somewhere, you know, an old oil stock certificate, am I rich? I got it at a garage sale. Part of that is, as Bruce says, anytime there is uh, on land a discovery, then uh, venture capitalists come out of the woodwork, uh, particularly in the unregulated days, to uh, make exorbitant claims and get investors, the venture capital, to drill a hole. And if they're lucky, they, they get some oil, maybe they can finance another well, so on and so forth. In the offshore business, the costs are so extraordinary. And at the time that uh, Kerr McGee, uh, began to undertake this uh, effort to not build a pier and not just build a, a uh, oil derrick, but build an oil derrick completely out of sight of land, way out in the Gulf, although it was only about 15 feet deep because of the nature of the Gulf, uh, as opposed to California. The 15 foot deep waters allowed them to service uh, service uh, an oil derrick out there using a lot of World War II equipment, a lot of innovation. There was no offshore oil exploration rigs. You know, you couldn't pick up your oil well supply and order one of those. So all of this was uh, innovation that step by step from, uh, you know, from the shore to the sea, the Gulf of Mexico became a prime prime uh, option because as the Gulf uh, California peers had taught, you go out far enough, there's still oil there. Uh, the problem uh, in California is the drop-off is pretty quick out there where you fellers live. Well, you know, I wanted to, uh, let's talk a little bit about California uh, and a, particularly in the Ventura area, uh, an, uh, an area that is still today a very active oil and gas development region of California. In fact, on Coastal News Today last week, uh, there was a petition of 45,000 signatures signed by supporters of the oil and gas industry in Ventura County asking that the county's new restrictions on oil and gas development be rescinded. So it is still an active oil and gas region 
Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the development of oil and gas on the California coast uh, generally? When did that start, and what was the initial uh, approach to getting uh, hydrocarbons uh, from underneath the sea? Well, let me, let me think about that for a second. Usually I just answer without thinking. That seems to work. Well, the industry uh, reached the West Coast in, in the late 1870s. And uh, again, I hesitate to say the first uh, California oil well, but around 1875, there was a company called uh, California Star Oil Works. And they drilled a well that actually hit a high pressure zone. So it had a gusher and boy, that makes the headlines. And so it uh, that launched the California drilling boom. Uh, Early production came in Pico Canyon, if that's a pronunciation, where in the 1870s, California was building pipelines and refineries. And uh, a lot of those early discoveries, since they had seen the news from the east about the Drake well of the 1850s and 60s, uh, Northern California became a very popular area because for years they had found oil seeps. And I guess along the coast there, they were, you know, balls of tar that were rolling up on the beaches and things. And so a lot of the communities would actually lobby to, to get drilling to relieve the pressure to prevent the offshore oil seeps from ruining their beaches. Wow. Okay. I have a, I have a, a little tale, Southern California weird oil and gas tale that I'm sure Bruce and Chris, you guys are aware of. Peter, you might not be aware of this. So my grandfather, who grew up in Los Angeles, remembers when he was a boy, you could go to the La Brea Tar Pits and like medicinally bathe in the tar. Y'all know that? <laughs> wow. <laughs> like you would dip your feet in it. It was considered a, a medicinal, I suppose, or therapeutic. You would go, you would wait, you would, there was a, a grassy area down to this tar pit, which I'm sure smelled like sulfur and was kind of a, a, an awkward, you know, by modern standards, kind of an awkward practice. But when he was in, when he was a kid, people would, women, b kids would go down and, and bathe in the tar. How crazy is that? <laughs> ten, ten go in and nine come out. That's a... <laughs> well, you have to be careful, I suppose. But uh, yeah, he, he the, true story. There is a lot of oil and gas just in that area. And it does bu bubble up uh, above Ojai where I grew up. There's Sulphur Mountain. And uh, when the Thomas fire blew through uh, in 2018, these oil seeps lit on fire. And we're burning for, I mean, they might even still be burning. They're, they can be burning deep in the uh, earth. Um, anyway, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of oil and gas there. And Peter, we've talked before about how in World War II, we've, we've talked with people in Ventura about the history, uh, Brian Brennan, uh, about how uh, just from the hills right there, adjacent the shoreline, oil was being pumped out, run down the hills, in pipelines out to piers where it would be dumped onto uh, oil vessels, container vessels yeah. that then would go out to Pearl Harbor in Hawaii and, and fuel the Pacific fleet during World War II. There was yeah. just a tremendous demand. I don't believe it was much more refined than that. Just the raw crude is what he was saying. 
Does that sound? Does that sound re- realistic? I'm, I'm, I don't know I, a lot of things that run on uh, uh, raw crude. I know that what you were talking about the the earliest medication. I mean, in uh, the Seneca Indians um, uh, back in, uh, as Bruce was saying, Oil Creek and so forth, um, uh, used it just as as uh, uh, medicines as it as it came out. Uh, one of Bruce's favorite products in mine is uh, leftover from. Edgar Casey's uh, find out in uh, Texas, and it's called crudoleum, and apparently it, it helps with baldness. So I've been using it on my. <laughs> I need to get some crudoleum. <laughs> so uh, when we're thinking about the history of offshore oil and gas development in the United States, we've mentioned California and the Southern California. Uh, oil and gas industry development, beginning with piers extending off from the shoreline. Uh, the Gulf of Mexico, of course, is a predominant region. Are there other parts of the American shoreline where oil and gas development offshore uh, occurred? Is it just California and the Gulf of Mexico? Or when you look around, what else do you see in the history? Well, certainly up in uh, Alaska has a rich oil history of its own, and not just the, the Prudhoe Bay, but when Alaska was the wilds, certainly uh, uh, the... Uh, the offshore business has developed uh, up in there, but in terms of the uh, history that that uh, we have been focused on, going around the coasts of the United States, um, certainly uh, the, the Gulf Coast, up until that uh, vertical line of longitude that approaches uh, Florida's Panhandle, where the a harsh line of uh, legislation and the oil rigs abruptly uh, disappear from the offshore in the Gulf uh, once you approach uh, Florida. For oil production geology, uh, California, again, with so many natural oil seeps, uh, it, it's just amazing. And it's all California's coastline. If you get uh, farther north into Oregon and Washington, the geology changes. And uh, the state of Washington has no oil production onshore or offshore. And so it's offshore California that really attracted the drilling. And then as the technologies improved, that's where the Gulf of Mexico, because by the 1920s and 30s and literally 19, 1938, there was offshore drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. And then the, the, the more famous 1947 out of sight from land uh, off of Morgan City in the Gulf of Mexico. So it was all the technology drill, driven. The East Coast geology uh, is, is different and it hasn't been explored. And, and I just I, I don't think it's it's the. Uh, it's the technology of the Gulf that has evolved and, and really driven the modern offshore industry, everything from supplying to uh, service companies and all of that. Huh. So in, the, as you I'm sorry, go ahead, Chris. I, I just want to say one of the things you guys might be particularly interested in is, is California uh, guys, um, uh, given that that uh, the, the state is uh, perforated many, many times and offshore uh, as well. The, um, the, the problems of subsidence, where literally the, the, the ground, having had so much oil extracted out of it, begins to yeah. settle. Yeah. Uh, you've, uh, you know, our Archean and Oklahoma are starting to see uh, a little bit of that, well, with some uh, uh, tremor act and earthquake activity. But the lowering of the, uh, literally, of, of the ground and the engineering requirements, as well as the environmental requirements, 
have resulted in, in your area in particular of the community adapting to the realization that, you know, it's dirty, but you got, you know, it's a requirement, we'll do the best we can to um, directional drilling and thumbs is probably the best example of that out in, uh, in your, uh, in Los Angeles there, where directional drilling allows a fairly nondescript building to service dozens and dozens of wells that are functioning under the feet of the public without damage or interference to the public. Hmm. Was, uh, so was that for the benefit of our audience a little bit, let's, let's explain this directional drilling, uh, technology, uh, was that, can you tell us when that was developed and what were the, what problem were they trying to solve when, how does it work and why did they develop directional drilling? Go for it, Bruce. You know that story. Well, I mean, I mean the, 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 the advances, I mean, it's a technological advance. And, and nowadays they talk about uh, steerable bits. I mean, um, drilling, I mean, it has advanced so much even since the 1970s, Peter, that the, the ability to do first what they called slant drilling to just basically get off the borehole and get away from the vertical uh, evolved. And, and even in the 1930s, uh, the coming up with portable rigs. There's a gentleman named George uh, Failing, I think, in Oklahoma. He came up with the idea of having a rig on the back of a uh, Ford truck that could uh, drill a lot quicker. And uh, there was a, uh, an oil disaster in Conroe, Texas, that they first applied his portable drilling rig. And it just basically drilled at an angle. The technology for actual horizontal drilling evolved with uh, the other technologies that included uh, great advances in seismic. I don't know, Peter, in the 1970s, yeah. when, when you were working with your tool pushers and the company men and everything yeah. else, they were constantly trying to find out. And that's where uh, the, the public doesn't really understand. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I'm one of them. What are we talking about? What are we talking about here with seismic? Well, the geologists, the, 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 in fact, the profession of petroleum geologists evolved with the industry because to find out where the oil was, and that's like in 1901, spindle top, salt dome structures and anticlinal traps. A lot of terms I really don't know much about, but the, the fact of understanding of the geology, seismic is just basically thumping the ground and get, watching the reflection come back up. It actually evolved from World War II technology to help the, the allies would use it to try to locate German artillery. And so you use these cones on the ground uh, but basically, it, it does a, a sonogram of, of the earth and uh, helps you find stratigraphic traps where you'll find oil and natural gas production. Got it. I mean, I think this is kind of a, you know, when you think of drilling for oil, the thing that comes to mind, I think, for people unfamiliar with it is, yeah, you're drilling a vertical hole straight into the ground. You're trying to puncture some sort of cavern where there's oil or gas deposited. Uh, but the fact of the matter is this horizontal drilling is to go down to the right layer, a producing layer of, of the geologic formation, and turn the pipe 90 degrees and drill laterally underneath the surface to perforate that layer and to release the oil and gas. I mean, as you say, these steerable bits, it's a very sophisticated uh, operation, incredibly technologically advanced uh uh, even though it looks simple, I guess, at the surface, it's a complicated business. Uh, 
I would like to ask, and something I really don't understand, and maybe uh, our listeners would would also benefit. Can y'all explain what fracking is, and is fracking used in offshore? But tell us what fracking is, and what development. Uh, when did that start, and what is it? Why is it important? Well, you you mentioned uh, perforating. Uh, fracking is just a fancy way of perforating a producing formation. And as, as Chris has researched, it, it began practically with the petroleum industry. It was actually a, a Civil War veteran, a union officer, who came up with the idea of at the bottom of an oil well, if you uh, explode some dynamite or later nitroglycerin uh, at the base of it, after putting water on the top, I mean, and, and basically coming up with the, what they called at the time in Pennsylvania in the early oil fields, shooting a well. And it dramatically increased production because if you're just if you're in a producing zone, you're looking for any way to get as much oil as possible into the pipe. And that's uh, fracking began there and it evolved over the years. But by the mid 1940s, the technology got to the point and it was a guy named Earl Halliburton in Oklahoma that came up with hydraulic fracturing. And that's where he high pressure water and sand and 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 different materials uh, to again increase the fissures in these uh, producing zones so pumping down high pressure water it's a very, and sand very highly complex process go ahead well it's i was just going to mention it uh it's a uh a hugely complex process that has evolved off uh as bruce said it was 1933 when uh basically yet another oil field uh hazard of uh a fire and uh, gas charged sands and they just had a, a collapse and a disaster and could not put this, uh, could not uh, stop this uh, roaring uh, well. It's not uh, too much different from the one in California that, that uh, uh, I don't remember the name, Bruce, but the, the, there's a California well that uh, maybe in Maricopa that just went on and on and on and on. This was doomed to the same, um, to the same future uh, until, as Bruce said, failing had this little uh, capacity to drill slant wells. Now, drilling a straight hole in the ground had always been a problem, even when uh, we had to get involved in fishing. Something gets caught down there, and you got to deviate just a little bit, but try and keep it straight. Directional drilling was just as uh, Bruce said, fan out horizontally. The the fracking uh, at that point is is uh, is hydraulic, but in the early days. As you were saying, fracking uh, evolved first from dynamite and nitroglycerin. It was designed to increase production. Sometimes it did. Uh, sometimes it ruined, as in the case of John Wilkes Booth, it ruined his well. But other people's uh, experience led the techniques of fracking to evolve and fracking fluids. And of course, all the environmental considerations when the public can uh, easily be uh, ignited by, uh, you know, seeing water burning out of a faucet. And so that it's easier to get attention than it is to get the details of what's really going on. What, what do you mean water burning out of a faucet? What are you, what is that in reference to? Uh, I, there were a number of years ago, uh, became popular in the, the cinema. Um, when fracking became a very volatile uh, issue and I, I believe it was in West Virginia or Pennsylvania, somewhere uh, where methane is a common uh, problem close to the surface methane. And uh, 
so in, in, in framing the argument that fracking is responsible for this, some uh, uh, folks illustrated, well, look what could happen. And there are fellas in his house with his water faucet, turns the water on, then he can light it because along with his, uh, I guess, his local pump there, his pump was pumping up methane along with his water. That's a pretty inflammable, no pun, uh, image and gets people very uh, excited about uh, fracking, which I'm all for. I absolutely look into it. It is a dangerous business, but operate on fact rather than hysteria. No, well, and, wow. and, the, and it, as, as the technology of fracking evolved, particularly in the 40s and 50s, hydraulic uh, fracturing, the, the technology, it's for one thing, it's so deep in, in the typical well, way below the aquifers. But the amazing thing that it happened, and this was more in the late 70s and early 80s, at a time when America was importing more than 50% of its oil and the, the OPEC embargoes of the 70s, uh, we were in a serious situation. And again, the technology, there was even people talking about peak oil. There's no more oil to be found. And the writer, uh, well, many writers pointed out that every time you, you talk about peak oil, the industry technology advances. And the technology that came in the 80s was the combination of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing right. in, in tight shales. The geologists had known for decades uh, that, that shale produced, could produce natural gas and oil, but there was no way to get it out because shale was very hard. And when some, some uh, independent oil and gas producers figured out a way to do that, it virtually turned around the industry. And now America is, uh, is no longer dependent on foreign oil. I yeah. mean, it's, uh, we have an abundance of energy that for the last uh, couple of decades, thanks to this combination of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling. Well, as I understand it, over the last, uh, you know, 10 years, but in the last five years, the United States has been either the top oil and gas producer in the world or number two or number three with Russia and Saudi Arabia. Uh, we are the I think we are one of the major oil and gas exporters now, primarily uh, liquefied natural gas uh, from these uh, these fracturing operations in in Texas and in North Dakota and other parts of the country that are uh, that really have increased U.S. oil and gas production. I mean, we're, we're a leading uh, producer now, aren't we? Oh, that's exactly right. The the, the LNG revolution that, uh, thanks to the Bakken shale in, in the North and South Dakota, and and the, the the Texas shale production, it's incredible because years ago they were petitioning to build LNG importing plants. Right. And when these this technology evolved, suddenly they're converting what we're going to be importing LNG to exporting LNG. So you're exactly right. Well, it brings up what's happening in the Gulf of Mexico. And I, I want to reel back a little bit. We were talking about the 1930s and the uh, initial attempts to get offshore into the Gulf of Mexico for oil and gas development. And you mentioned that the first rig out of sight, I guess, Kerr-McGee, was still in only 15 feet of water because of the continental shelf, the very shallow shelf that extends off of Texas and Louisiana. Uh, we are now drilling in the Gulf of Mexico way out in the middle in water depths in excess of 5,000 feet deep. Uh, but the, in the early days of, of oil and gas offshore, the, the rigs sat on the bottom of the sea, did it not? I mean, these were jack-up rigs, they were called, or they, they, they sat on the ground, even though they were in the water. Can you talk a little bit about 
the development of the early offshore oil and gas technology in the Gulf of Mexico, and when do they venture into deep water and begin putting floating rigs out in the Gulf of Mexico? Can you walk us down that path a little bit? Well, the well, offshore, of course, was, uh, with Kermagee was uh, in uh, Kermac 16 was uh, the one that was took advantage of this uh, notion of uh, using surplus uh, World War II uh, freighters uh, to to service as servicing vehicles. So initially, part of the problem is, okay, we can build a rig out fairly far in the water. How do we serve it, service it and the people? And particularly in the Gulf of Mexico, the hurricane is a, a, a very much a part of, uh, of what they have to do. So the, the, the technology evolved quickly in order to move from that, as you pointed out, fixed to the bottom of the uh, ocean to something that floated and got required uh, geo-positioning and, uh, and maintenance of the position of the ship so that you could look down through what's called the moon pool and down far thousands of feet below is where the, uh, you know, where the drilling takes place. So it's a hybrid between you know, floating, finding the hole, and then getting it into production are all significantly different steps. Well, and that's, that's what, Tyler, we had talked about. The, uh, the, the technology evolved on these massive rigs that are now self-positioning and adjustable for the waves and everything else. But it was really in 1954 that a rig out of Louisiana called Mr. Charlie uh, got into the history books as the first mobile offshore drilling unit. And that's also important with the industry, although it used pylons, uh, uh, it, it, being able to go to one location, drill, then, then pick up and move the rig was a, a, a great innovation for the industry for efficiently finding oil offshore. So how would, you know, okay, so Mr. Charlie, how would Mr. Charlie work? Mr. Charlie is an older one, right? I, I'm, I'm, forgive me, I'm trying to keep my, my rig straight, but... What year was Mr. Charlie? 54. 1954, they floated it out, and that's really what it is. You float it out to where you want it. Okay. These the are so out. badass. I love this stuff. So when, Peter, we, we've spent a little time out in uh, Port Aransas, Texas. Yeah. And they have two or three, you know, depending on, uh, I guess, the price of oil. <laughs> you know, it kind of determines whether or not these things are working or not. <clears throat> but it's, it's where they store them when they're inactive, I guess. Right. It's like a warm storage. Well, they, yeah, we've seen them in uh, in Galveston. The, the, these are the modern right. the deep water drilling platforms that um, when they're not in operation, they're stored in port and there's a couple down there. They right. float. I yeah. mean, they're like a yeah. vessel. Yeah, I mean, kind of. They're I mean. extraordinary pieces of equipment to, uh, well beyond... Uh, the Mr. Charlie rigs um, of the fi of the fifties. Is it fair to say? And I, I, Tyler and I were talking about this before the show that, in terms of engineering technology and sophistication, uh, oil and gas, deep water oil and gas platforms are one of the most sophisticated uh, technologies that we have around today. I would say nuclear power plants, and there are other examples, but 
These machines are incredible, just the positioning and the motion and the ability to operate in these conditions. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of that offshore oil and gas technology from Mr. Charlie in 54 to what we have today, what people might see uh, in the Gulf of Mexico these days? Well, I like your description of Galveston Bay because the the refurbishing that goes on there, and there's actually a museum, a a converted uh, jack-off, jack-up, uh, rig that ha- it's called the Ocean Star, and it's part of the uh, Offshore Energy Center's uh, educational programs. But it's a it's a converted rig that, that that is now a museum that really would more directly answer that question, I guess, because that the technology has it evolved and gotten bigger. I I would compare a, a modern offshore rig to the space station because it has to be pretty much self sufficient and it is so complex to. Uh, keep that thing operating and keeping it supplied, keeping the people fed. It's a, uh, it's a constant uh, 24 hour operation. Well, the connection with, with, uh, with rocket ships is, uh, makes sense to me because uh, these, these platforms that you see that are uh, temporarily stowed away, uh, it, you know, it's, it's reminiscent of some of these things never go back to their, uh, to the real world in an unchanging energy environment, they certainly will. We've seen uh, uh, former uh, oil platforms uh, used as uh, experimental uh, rocket launch, uh, mobile rocket launch uh, facilities. This was, of course, before uh, SpaceX and its remarkable achievements. But we've seen um, those kinds of uh, innovations to take the industry further and further and deeper and deeper into tighter zones. Yeah, it really is remarkable. And um, clearly it it's all about our demand for oil, ladies and gentlemen. If you're listening to this and thinking, darn, why do we take these risks? And, I, you know, it's risky. There's risks associated with getting oil out of thousands of feet, you know, deep of water and then drilling thousands more beyond that to access a a really rich oil deposit there's environmental risk there that that on the american shoreline podcast network we definitely cover but i think it's really important to discuss this industry that has evolved clearly so much and i would like to talk a little bit about uh you know not only are the the individuals on the rig itself but just the the community of humans involved in make in making a an offshore rig like this function in the modern era i mean we're talking do you do you gentlemen know i mean are we talking like a a thousand people per rig i imagine i mean we know that in order to operate these things per day is hundreds of thousands of dollars just to turn the lights on and keep them deployed out at sea i mean it just must be staggering the human uh the horsepower required to keep these things going well you know i i think peter would would have a pretty good idea spending a lot of time on an active drilling rig watching the people come and go from the from the company to the geologists to the petroleum engineers right to the service companies to the drill bit manufacturers the infrastructure you're right it, it, it spreads um, throughout the the uh, the country and that's where i was amazed as i as a reporter covering the industry how many people from the upstream of, of finding and producing the oil 
to the midstream of the the, uh, the refining and and then you get uh, downstream to the the retail and the gasoline sales. It's just it's a, a very large and highly uh, uh, productive industry from employing an awful lot of people. Peter, did, did you have a lot of uh, visitors when you were on the rig? Well, we did. I mean, it, it, you're right. It's extraordinary. The, the, the drilling crew, which is our, the driller and about five guys, we are running the thing. But the tool pusher, the company man, the geology guys, the technicians that come out and are looking at the geologic uh, formation and looking at the shake with the what the pipe brings up you know what kind of formation are we in all the time uh, one of the most extraordinary things is we were uh, very deep into this well and uh, we were having some progress as they say making hole we were getting nowhere and uh, we were drilling maybe for 36 uh 36 or 72 hours before the bit had to be changed this is a very deep uh situation and they decided to bring in a diamond bit from the from the from the north sea they actually flew a guy into the texas panhandle carrying this very very expensive drill bit that was then we experimented with for a few days. And I, I was just struck by the, the investment that was made to try to get this well to its target depth. And uh, extraordinary. I mean, uh, you, you do realize how costly this stuff is to operate and uh, the number of people involved. It's, uh, you know, it's what keeps those panhandle towns alive out there. I was living in I was living in the fine city of Pampa, Texas at the time. And uh, working on a, a well outside of Wheeler, uh, Wheeler, Texas, was where our well was located. And and what I want to just on that note, like you're right out there in West Texas today, you travel out there. It's the fracking boom. I mean, you see the hotels where may, you even see hotels that have boomed and busted. I yeah. mean, that happened. That's like exists now in America. Man camps, you know. Yeah. Trailer but, parks. And- uh, you know, what I want to point out is that. I think when you, you certainly in the Gulf Coast of Texas, oil and gas industry, Louisiana, uh, Alabama, you know, the yeah, oil and gas, the, yeah, the, the oil and gas industries mark on the coast is it's massive. massive. If you fly over and you look down, you're going to see oil and gas infrastructure everywhere. Yeah. And in California, it's certainly the same way. Uh, although it's just not, it, it's not as modern. The, the industry's slowed down of late. It's at least it appears, uh, you don't see it. Uh, and you, but the his, the history is important because we, I believe that it fundamentally changed our relationship as a society to the shoreline in the sense that there was a me, an immediate draw. Other than as you say, you know, we have the fishing draw. The fisheries draw. We had the the ports and just general commerce, tourism, and tour tourism was always a thing for sure. Yeah. There were always other draws and reasons for people to come to the coast. But this oil and gas, the 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 moment in history, the technology development, the attitude of the people doing it, which was yeah, I'll get on a tractor and I'll push that dune over here and I'll drill the thing. I mean, it was just, it was a real a. a can do a, will it, well, do it's a get it, it's a get it done industry that's that's and i think say. that that's and i think a lot of people d- developed coastal areas and moved there and i think it shaped 
the yeah. the coastal well, development tremendously. That's my thesis. I don't. I don't. Yeah, that's a Chris thesis. and Bruce. I don't know. Yeah, if what that's do you guys think? I mean, how insane, how much of but, the development on on the Gulf Coast of uh, the United States is driven? Do you think by the oil and gas industry and the associated uh, uh, sectors that go with it? It's a big deal. I can, I can tell you one thing, and in Louisiana, there's an, a shrimper oil and gas festival every year, and a, a lot of the communities along the Texas and Louisiana coast uh, celebrate their petroleum heritage because they realize the income and the, the number of people that is employed. And in southeastern Texas, I mean, we, we didn't talk much about gasoline, but the transition from, from kerosene at the end of the 19th century to, and just just as the industry was experiencing its first bust, but because Thomas Edison had come up with the uh, with electricity and electric light bulb, demand for kerosene was collapsing. But fortunately, uh, Ford and the Model T came out, and everything shifted over at refineries. They just instead of gasoline being an unwanted byproduct of kerosene, they shifted over to gasoline, and that that revolutionized the transportation of in inland on, and along the coast and you know california being a, a car city that's where uh, production is awfully important for gasoline well there's no doubt uh, i think go ahead uh bruce oh i would just i would just uh add that uh i i absolutely uh, agree that you know during the particular time in history as industries rise uh and fall and booms and busts come and go that certainly the uh, uh california has a, not only a rich history of, of oil, but they also have a fabulous history of, uh, you know, industrial responsibility and records keeping. Hmm. Uh, you'll frequently see, uh, you know, think about how many wells you see out there now when you fly over and think about flying over that back in time over and over and over again. How many wells have been punched into California and yielded the resources that California has benefited uh, from. So if nothing else, the economic impact certainly changes the whole character of anybody that gets uh, uh, deeply involved in oil production. Yeah, Well-paid jobs. I mean, uh, for working people, uh, the oil and gas industry, all the way up to the major corporate uh, investments that are made, it's an incredibly productive and meaningful economic sector, no doubt. Um, but we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the Deepwater Horizon spill. The, 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 the industry is, is something that we all can be proud of, the, the innovation, the technology, the engineering, the economic uh, meaning to coastal communities around the American shoreline, particularly in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, but uh, it's, a risky, it's a risky proposition, especially as we get deeper out into the Gulf of Mexico, uh, 2010 Deepwater Horizon spill, uh, something we all watched on TV around the world. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what caused that accident? Can, can you introduce our audience maybe from your perspective as oil and gas historians? What, what happened there? Bruce, I would, uh, if I popped off, I'd say the first thing would be like uh, 10, or 10 years of success, 10 years of uninterrupted success and the extremely hazardous becoming kind of routine, like back in the 50s when we used to watch rocket launches. Well, and that's true. And that's also true of the Exxon Valdez, that the, the tanker sizes were just getting larger and larger and larger and the crews were getting smaller and smaller, but they had never had a problem until they ran aground on Blyer Reef. 
And I think uh, with the, the well at the Macondo Prospect, the, the, uh, it, it was actually a technology thing of the, between the cementing a well and, and trying to keep the pressure, a combination of human error and uh, some connections that were misconnected. It, it, uh, the, the, the well itself, I mean, it was using the modern technology, but because a certain series of events took place, they culminated in this explosion and the sinking of the rig, the killing of 11 people. Right. But uh, it's been it's been studied considerably, and the, the, whether it was BP or the contractor, the uh, transocean, the itself, I think it was just it was it was the outer edge of technology, and and uh, mistakes were made, and so it happens when you're pushing the edge of the envelope with those very deep wells. Right, and, and I was very interested in it. Uh, it as a coastal consultant at the time because of the amount of money that was generated through the Restore Act and the investments that have been made in coastal restoration. And uh, if you were involved in coastal planning and restoration, uh, the BP spill was important to understand uh, the revenues and the fines and the penalties that contributed to so much good work since that 2010 event. But I wanted to kind of share my thoughts of having looked at, you know, read about it as much as I could, looking at the pleadings in the cases and the NERDA settlement and all of this stuff. And uh, my takeaway was uh, this was a well that had already been drilled to its target depth. They were completing the well, I believe is the terminology. They were getting it ready for production. Uh, as you were saying, they're cementing the well, which for those uh, folks in the, just the general audience, can you, can you explain what it means to cement a well or to complete a well after it's been drilled to its target depth? What were they trying to do there? Wow, I would almost defer to Peter on this too, because yeah, that's, <laughs> it's a technical part, but it, it, you've, it, it's very important to have the, the uh, well cemented to, to, to protect the uh, the borehole is right. that right, Peter? Well, the integrity of the borehole to keep the the oil where it's supposed to be, keep the drilling right. where it's supposed to be, and manufacture you know keep it in uh, in production. Yes, yeah, so, and, and the way I understood it is, once you've got the target depth, this is a high pressure well. First of all, so what you're trying to do is basically put a cap on it, a valve on the top, so you can open and close it and let oil come out in a controlled way. And in order to, to cement the well, which is to put enough cement down the, the, the sides of the, uh, of the pipe, the production pipe, to hold everything in place. And what I read was the Transocean, which I believe was the operator of the rig, they were running a little behind schedule in the completion of the well. The daily cost of having that rig on site was, I don't know if it's a million dollars a day, but it's extraordinarily expensive uh, these guys are time sensitive, uh, completing the well and getting it done and getting the rig off site and moving into the production phase is very important. And what I heard is they rushed it. There were, there were a number of, of steps that had to be taken to properly cement the well. They seemed to have cut a few corners and they, there wasn't a secure enough plug essentially on the top of this well and it exploded. I mean, is that a fair, is that consistent with what your understanding of this is, or is that too simplistic? I, I, th I think that's what courts found. I mean, it was investigated, and about four years later, uh, they uh, slapped a, 
almost a $20 million uh, fine on BP. Uh, or yeah, actually it was uh, 18.7 billion yeah. in fines yeah. that they, they gave uh, BP. So yeah, uh, there were sometimes between compl- complacency and, and just overlooking things that should not be overlooked, but, uh, okay. Uh, it, is, it is customary that it, in, whether it's a car wreck or a plane crash or a shuttle disaster, when you disassemble the pieces in retrospect, it is always several seemingly unrelated pieces that, that come together. But, uh, you know, I don't think that uh, that we will ever get past the point of uh, having qualms about the risk versus the reward. So as the country changes from its demand for uh, gasoline to other uh, hydrocarbons, the rest of the world will go on. And I'm afraid we'll continue to see anytime you've got the edge of technology, you've got people's lives and livelihoods at risk. No question. Okay. But uh i i i have just a this is kind of going way out you're talking about cementing the well now there's a big wit rig that goes out that's the deep water horizon rig yeah okay now when that well is completed does the rig go away or does it stay out there forever goes away oh really and so then you're just pipelining it up through yeah Yeah, see i had no idea they're gonna put a i had no idea they're gonna put a, a a production a production uh, platform, platform right? on um, top of it and they're gonna the, the well has been drilled the drilling operation is over and now we're extracting the product and through pipeline through a network of pipelines okay so in california when you see those floating those structures which are actually on the bottom i mean they, they're not jack up i don't believe but they're some type out there okay those are not actually the drilling rigs because the, those wells have already been Right, sunk and I think completed. it's the production platform. That's right? a you production guys, platform. I, yeah. Well, that's new for me. Yeah, yeah. Under under them, you may have uh, spider legs of pipes running out uh, to other uh, sources that have been drilled. As I as I said, the Deepwater Horizon right. uh, before it managed to sink had already uh, drilled two peripherally uh, deep wells that had gone into production. So this was its third and unlucky charm. Huh, yeah, I wow. think the, the site it was at before set a world record for offshore depths. Uh, and so it, it's a, was, was it a pretty advanced piece of equipment? And, you know, I, I one of the things I've done over uh, Googled up, I was very interested, if you Google up uh, maps of Gulf of Mexico oil pipelines, uh, you get this picture of all of the pipelines that are laying on the seafloor that are like a spider web across uh, the Gulf of Mexico from Louisiana and Texas. Do you guys know how many miles of pipeline there are sitting on the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico? Has anybody tabulated that up? I think uh, that's been tabulated, but not by us. It's on the, uh, Bruce, what's the website that we use? The used to be NOAA? Well, yeah, and they're there's offshore magazine and rig zone. There's probably been article. That's a good question. There's probably been articles about how many and uh, whether they're natural gas and whether they're oil. I do know that there's also uh, a, a geological survey map of the continental United States that most Americans don't realize yeah. that is also a spider web of pipelines. Uh, and a lot of them running through Cushing, Oklahoma, a little town that calls itself the pipeline capital of the world. Huh. Well, 
It's a fascinating industry, and uh, I think is we we want to pay attention to it, and we want our listeners to be conversant in it. Uh, we all understand the ramifications of hydrocarbon production. Uh, the both the benefits economically and the risks environmentally. We haven't mentioned climate change. It's a contributing factor, uh, obviously, in what we uh, put into the atmosphere and how it affects the coastline. Uh, but it's such an important industry. And uh, I was wondering, as, as, as we close this discussion out, looking down the road, as, as historians who have gone back and 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 really documented this industry from its very beginnings, not just offshore, but uh, the entire American oil and gas uh, industry development. Looking ahead, what do you guys see? Are we going to see a decline in oil and gas production or use of these products? Where do, what are you looking at over the next, what do you think is going to happen over the next 50 years? How is this industry going to evolve? Wow. I, I wish I knew a definitive answer for that because We'd there's be a rich. lot of debate these days, uh, particularly with the economic downturn because of the COVID crisis. Uh, there have been some arguments, some articles about how much world demand for oil will continue or whether we've we've reached the, the maximum de- demand level as, as more people are switch o- switching over to renewable energies. And so... Uh, I think the industry can... always manages to survive. I mean, Dan Jurgen uh, wrote a book called The Prize that he he was very critical of the seventies where they were talking about peak oil and the industries through. But uh, as the technologies evolve and as they find resources, uh, it, it's it's hard for us to find a, a resource that is as efficient as petroleum. But we eventually will. I think the. the cutting back on the demand for using petroleum and transportation and for power. Uh, but it's, it's definitely going to be used in, in agriculture and in uh, plastics. Well, for the whole, you know, the, the, the history of the oil industry just tells us that it is an extraordinarily uh, flexible resource that uh, while it is indeed a resource and that's just the physics of it, that's it holds energy and stores energy the the industry will change but i think it will be here for in, indefinitely it's just part of uh part of life as i agree with bruce absolutely one one day we'll look back on the uh expansive use of gasoline as uh, rather an unlikable part of our uh history um and uh, wonder why did why did we do that um but that will come in retrospect after the industry has adapted, I'm sure international yeah. buggy whips was the, the same way when they were lost <laughs> in technology. Like, uh, you know, we're saying now, uh, I find in talking uh, to people that are in the industry that uh, there's a great sense of offense uh, for many of them out there. Like, wait a minute, we're the good guys. You know, you know look, at the, uh, look at the 1959 stamp. We're the good guys. We're not the bad guys. Yeah. They feel put upon in the sense that, wait a minute, I don't tear up the environment. I'm, I like the environment. You know. So the industry yeah. will change to adapt what it needs to do to stay viable. And it will. It's going to provide employment in some fashion to a major, major part of the American economic sector, as far as you and I and anybody else can see. 
Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely a fair conclusion to draw. Uh, there is a transformation going on. There are, I think we are going to see and are starting to see less uh, fossil fuels for power production. Uh, that's happening around the world, even though there's more coal plants still being built. There's a shift there. There's a technology that functions. Uh, that's only going to get better. Uh, and we are going to see some of those offshore rig manufacturers down in Louisiana start building uh, jackets and structures for offshore wind power in the Northeast Corridor. That's already starting to happen. Uh, so I think there is an evolution. And, and if you look at the offshore leases for wind power off of the Northeast that have occurred in the last year, some of the major bidders on those offshore uh, wind power lease sites have been BP and Shell Oil and other uh, major oil companies. They are now beginning the process of becoming energy companies, regardless of the way in which that energy is produced. And I think that transformation is already underway. There's significant investment being made in renewable technology, particularly for uh, power production. And we're starting to see the beginning transformation in tra in transportation. And as you're saying, gasoline is, is probably going to be less of a source for, for moving goods and services around on land than it has been in the past. But um, I, I agree with you all that the, the oil and gas industry is not going to disappear. Uh, as you said, the feedstock of this product is so important in manufacturing all kinds of things uh, that we're going to be drilling for oil for a long time. But hopefully... Uh, we get serious about these emission issues because I do think it's real and I do think the industry has to play a role in uh, in solving climate change. I agree completely. And that, that's those companies that are moving to, in fact, I just, I just saw an article that there's a meeting on floating wind, wind turbines offshore. Yeah. And, and that, that it just reminds me of the early offshore drilling technologies, this offshore wind technology tech how they going to be evolving and becoming more efficient. And, and so you'll have all these things combining and, and it's hopefully we pay attention to the environment. Well, you guys have a little, you guys are, are uh, certainly more, very well, uh, much more versed than a, a lot of folks are on the, the, the history of the organ of the industry. And it, it's the history that a lot of people say, well, we're going to, you've got to learn from the past or, you know, you, fail in the future. It's not so much the learning as it is just putting the context on it, connecting the dots so you can see that this is the machine at work and it has mm. all its works and it has all of that, but it's perfectly doable and, and not the enemy if we can get our uh, heads together and wrap, wrap, wrap around where we've made extremely difficult and extremely economically risky choices. Uh, you can recall that even with uh, Spiro Agnew had to break the had, had to break the uh, congressional deadlock over the uh, Trans-Alaskan pipeline. So it's, it's not going to change. We'll have the level of, of uh, controversy because that's the nature of the oil business. But history gives you the, the context to know that, hey, wait a minute, We've, we uh, have seen how this technology adapts. I think we can have the confidence that it will continue to in the future. No question. And uh, I appreciate that comment very much, Chris, because that sentiment of the whole machine and how it works, I just think that is so important for 
uh, all of us in this kind of mission to de-siloize and understand uh, that this is the planet. This is our coastal space. This is the way we use it. You might not be aware of all these pipelines running under, you know, on the seafloor uh, and how, how these systems work. And I'm not suggesting that we can all become experts, you know. But what we can do on this little program is talk to people like Bruce and Chris and learn more about yeah. what's actually out there. It's a complicated, complex industry that mostly works really well. There are some big failures that are, are clear, but man, what humanity has done with all of this energy that the oil and gas industry has given us is we've revolutionized our lives. I mean, you think about this COVID vaccine flying yeah. around the country in moments. I mean, all of that energy unlocks uh, the human experience that we all know. And so I think it's just worth going back and uh, and tracing out exactly how this offshore business got started. Yeah, I think it's good to know. And uh, Bruce and Chris, we'd love to have you back on occasionally to... to uh, help our audience better understand this industry this was kind of a wide-ranging overview show this was the survey interview but there's a there's some real detail and things that we would love to hear more about uh so i want to thank you guys for for being on the show well again thanks for having us i'm gonna have to stay up on drilling muds a little bit more for next time <laughs> well ladies and gentlemen it is bruce wells he's the founder and executive director of the american oil and gas historical society in washington dc along with his brother a senior contributing editor and research for the historical society two great guys who uh who really keep track of uh this industry Please visit their website, aogs.org. It's fascinating. Uh, look, we have to we have to contend with the real world, and uh, this industry is such an important part of the American shoreline that we are just glad to to share uh, y'all's insights with our listeners. So thank you, thank you very much for being on the American Shoreline podcast. Well, please go to the uh, website and let your curiosity uh, take you. Uh, you know, aside from the very uh, heavy issues that uh, that uh, history bears upon us. It also tells some wonderfully bet you didn't know that kind of story. And uh, <laughs> yes, you can have some fun on the site as uh, some fun on the site as well. And we hope you do. And thanks for having us. Appreciate your time, gentlemen. Have a great holiday season.